I'm sure I don't have to tell you that people in our world are fascinated with knowing the future. It has always been that way. People spend enormous amounts of money going to fortune tellers and mediums and spiritists and witches to try to find out what is going to happen in the future. And sometimes those fortune tellers get a few things right because, after all, even a stopped clock is right two times every 24 hours. But when God tells the future, He is always 100% accurate. Not only that, but He writes it down so everyone can see and know exactly what He has said and so that everyone can verify the accuracy of what He has said once the event has taken place. That is, in my opinion, the strongest apologetic for the fact that the Bible is the inspired and errant Word of God. When historians sit down to write history, they thoroughly research events that have taken place in order to record them chronologically and accurately, and yet their record of history is not always precise. However, when God decides to write history, He records it in advance, and His accuracy rating is 100%. Peter Stoner took 11 prophecies and figured out that the probability of all 11 coming to pass by accident was 1 in 5.76 times 10 to the 59th power. That proves to us at least two things. Number one, God is the author of Scripture. God is the author of the Bible. And secondly, it proves that God is the sovereign ruler of history. He moves history where He wants it to go. He knows where history is going, and He knows what is going to happen. For instance, take Isaiah 44, 28, where God says, It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and He shall perform all my desire, even saying to Jerusalem, She will be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. There in that passage, Isaiah records God saying this. A man by the name of Cyrus is going to... Now, keep in mind, Cyrus was a foreign ruler, so not even of the Jewish people. But there God says a man by the name of Cyrus is going to release the Jewish people from captivity and send them back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall and the temple. Isaiah recorded that 150 years before Cyrus was even born. And it took place exactly as God said it would. Though from a human standpoint, it seemed highly unlikely that a foreign ruler would release the Jews and tell them to go back and rebuild their city and their temple. If you think that is something, just listen to the words of 1 Kings 13 too. Thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. There in that passage, God says 
that a man named Josiah is coming and he will burn all the false priests. That is fulfilled to the letter in 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 15 through 20. And catch this, that was 300 years later. 300 years. And yet God named him by name. Beloved, that's not just coincidence. That's not just happenstance. That's the sovereignty of God as the omniscient author of the Bible and as the omnipotent controller of human history. When the Lord says something is going to happen, it is going to happen. No matter how bizarre it sounds, no matter how far-fetched it may seem, no matter how strange it may appear, when the Lord says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. That is true whether we're talking about prophetic predictions in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Both are equally inspired. When we think about predictive prophecy, it is easy to limit our thinking to passages in the Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture that have been fulfilled in the New Testament era. But listen, there are many passages in the New Testament that are also predictive prophecy, and they will also be fulfilled at some time in the future. Mark chapter 13 falls into that category. Let's turn there together to the chapter we have been considering for several weeks now. Mark chapter 13. Our text will be verses 21 through 23, but I want to begin reading in verse 14 so that we are reminded of the context. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 14, Jesus said, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. As we have seen in our recent studies of the Olivet Discourse, the Jewish people are going to be persecuted fiercely during the last days. In fact, Jesus says that it will be a tribulation and it will be persecution such as has never been. And by the way, that is a reminder to us that Jesus is not speaking here of A.D. 70 because no one could dare say that what happened in A.D. 70 was worse than what happened in the Holocaust. So this cannot be fulfilled in A.D. 70. Jesus is talking about something that is unprecedented, 
the worst tribulation, the worst persecution the Jewish people have ever experienced. In fact, Jesus said, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. History records that 1.1 million Jews were killed in the events around A.D. 70. That's a lot of lives lost. But you know that the Holocaust was six times more than what happened in A.D. 70. So again, you cannot say that Mark 13 has been fulfilled in A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, because Jesus said in both Matthew's account and Mark's account that what he is talking about in the future is something that has no precedent whatsoever. And Jesus says here, God is not going to allow his chosen people to be annihilated. Satan would love to annihilate the Jewish people, and he has tried many times in the past. He tried when the king of Egypt ordered the slaughter of all the Jewish male babies when the Jewish people were in Egypt as, as slaves. He tried in the book of Esther when Haman came up with a wicked plot to murder all the Jews. He tried when Antiochus Epiphanes wanted to massacre all the Jewish people in the intertestamental period. And he tried when Hitler carried out the Holocaust, just to mention a few examples. Satan has tried many times to wipe out the Jewish people because he knows if he can wipe out the Jewish people, then he can prove God to be a liar because God made promises to the Jewish people that must be fulfilled. Satan does not want them fulfilled. So he has tried many times to wipe out the Jewish people. He's going to try again through his man, the future Antichrist. But God is going to prevent that from happening. In fact, he is going to supernaturally protect the Jewish people so that they aren't completely wiped out as a people. Let me show you this in Revelation 12 by way of introduction this morning. Turn from Mark's gospel over to Revelation chapter 12. Follow along as I read this chapter for us. John records this. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now! Salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. 
and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. This chapter pictures for us important truth about the past and the future in graphic symbolism. John opens this chapter by by describing a great sign he saw in heaven. A A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, And on her head, a garland of 12 stars. This particular woman obviously represents Israel. The fact that she is clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, depicts Israel as a royal nation. She is that because she has been chosen by God to be such. But God has been pleased to give us the scripture through the Jewish people and the Messiah through the Jewish people. The garland of 12 stars is an obvious portrayal of the 12 tribes of Israel. John saw another sign in heaven, a great fiery red dragon. There's no question that this is a reference to Satan. Verse 9 removes all doubt. In the early verses of this chapter, the great dragon, Satan, tried to devour and destroy the child that was born of the woman. The child, of course, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Verse 5 makes that clear when it says, This child was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Verse 6 tells us that this woman fled into the wilderness to be protected and cared for 1,260 days. That is three and a half years. And it is later described in the chapter as a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. Why does the woman do that? Well, verses 7 through 12 partially answer the question. The woman Israel will need to be protected for three and a half years Because at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period, Michael and his angels are going to throw Satan and his angels out of the heavenly realm, and they will no longer have access to heaven. And if you doubt that they have access to heaven, just read Job 1, where it says that there was the day when the sons of God, B'nai Elohim, came to appear before God, and Satan was there among them. So Satan and his angels, Satan and the demons, have access to the heavenly realm. But at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation, Michael and his angels are going to throw Satan and his angels out of the heavenly realm, and they will no longer have access to heaven. That means Satan will hit this earth with all of his fury, and he will be forced to limit his destructive work to the earthly realm. That's why verse 12 says, Rejoice, O heavens, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Satan will know that his time is short, 
So he will do everything he can to wreak havoc on this earth, and he will focus much of his venomous hatred on Israel to try to make sure that God doesn't fulfill his promises to Israel. Israel is still in existence today, but because she still hasn't embraced her Messiah, the Lord Jesus, she is going to go through a time of immense suffering. We read just a few moments ago from the words of Jesus that it will be a time of suffering that is unprecedented, a time of suffering that the Jewish people have never, like they have never experienced in all of their history. However, God will not allow them to be annihilated. Verse 13 says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The dragon is Satan, the woman who gave birth to the child is Israel. And when Satan is thrown out of the heavens and barred access from the heavens, as verses 7 through 12 describe, he is going to vent all his fury on Israel. Verse 14 says, But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. How long is that? We've already been told in this chapter, 1260 days, three and a half years, 42 months. Those time designations are repeated throughout the book of Revelation, so we don't miss it. It's three and a half years, time, times, half a times, 42 months, 1260 days. God is going to supernaturally protect Israel for the final three and a half years of the tribulation, and that time period is known as the Great Tribulation. During the first three and a half years, Israel will dwell in safety because the Antichrist will sign some kind of seven-year treaty or agreement with the nation. However, at the midpoint, he will break that treaty and he will seek to annihilate Israel. But that won't happen because this verse describes supernatural protection. It says the woman will be given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness. The picture of wings is used throughout the Old Testament to symbolize God's protection and God's deliverance. For example, in Exodus 19.4, God said, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. That refers to God's empowering of them to be able to leave Egypt. And in the tribulation, God will empower Israel to flee into the wilderness, which Jesus told them to do in the Olivet Discourse. There Israel will be nourished. How? We don't know for sure. But maybe God will provide them with manna and quail again, like he did under Moses. In our text in Mark 13, Jesus warned the Jewish people to flee immediately when they see or hear about the abomination of desolation. Where will Israel go? Many suggest that the people of Israel will go to Petra. That's definitely a good possibility. Specifically, how will she escape? I don't know. All I know is that she will somehow be supernaturally aided to be protected from the serpent. But Satan won't give up. Verse 15 says, So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. What is this? I don't know. God is using symbolic language throughout this chapter, so I can't tell you specifically how Satan is going to spew water out of his mouth, but I do know that it means that Satan is going to be tenacious in his attempts to destroy Israel. 
Verse 16 tells us, But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. This flood could be a flood of water, or it could be armies flowing like a river, as in the figure of speech used by Isaiah in chapter 8, verses 7 and 8 of his book. Whatever it is that Satan spews at Israel, whether it's a flood of water or a, a rushing army, whatever it is, is going to be engulfed by the earth. The earth will open up and swallow the threat which will infuriate Satan even further. Verse 17 tells us, And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Satan was already angry because he couldn't kill Christ back in verse 4. And he became even more angry when he was thrown out of heaven in verse 9. Now that he can't get to this group of Jews, he will be infuriated. So this verse says he will go to make war with the rest of her offspring. That could be a reference to Gentile believers of the tribulation period, or it could refer to the 144,000 special Jewish missionaries back in chapter 7, or it could refer to Jews who will not be in Israel when the persecution breaks out and don't have to flee into the wilderness. I don't know how all the particulars of God's work with Israel are going to fit together, but I do know that God has a future plan for Israel. He is going to keep the Jewish people from being annihilated. And he is going to use the tribulation period to bring the Jewish people to saving faith in Jesus their Messiah. As the book of Revelation indicates when it opens, they will look on him whom they pierced, and they will mourn for him as for an only son or an only child. That will happen with Israel. Now back to our text in Mark chapter 13. So Satan will try to annihilate the Jewish people during the future tribulation period but God will supernaturally preserve a remnant. However, that's not all Satan will try to do. He is not only going to attempt to destroy the Jewish people physically during the future tribulation period, he is also going to, to try to destroy them spiritually by getting them to believe in a false Christ or a false Messiah. Understandably, when the Jewish people are going through all these horrors, they will want someone to step forward to be their Savior. And Satan will use that in an attempt to deceive them to believe in a false Christ. And Jesus warns about that very thing as this text continues to unfold. Notice what he says in verse 21. He says, then, he's been talking about this tribulation. Verse 19, in those days, there will be tribulation such as it has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created till this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then, then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. 
No doubt this is going to happen many times during the tribulation period. As the Jewish people become desperate for someone to intervene for them, false Christs are going to be held up as their Savior. And it would be very easy for the Jewish people to believe in those false Christs because they will be grasping at whoever promises them protection and deliverance. That's why Jesus gives this warning. His final words in this verse are, Do not believe it. The very fact that Jesus gives this warning indicates that it will be tempting for the Jewish people to believe in these false Christs. They will be desperate and therefore vulnerable. So in verse 22, Jesus explains further. He says, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. That will make the false Christs extremely believable. I mean, think about this. They will be satanically enabled to perform miracles and great signs. 2 Thessalonians 2.9, a passage that is also predictive. It is a, it is a futuristic passage. <coughs> says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Those three words, this is fascinating. Those three words used there in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, miracles, signs, and wonders, are the exact same three words used in Acts 2.22 to describe the miracles of Jesus. And the same three words used in Hebrews 2.4 to describe the miracles of the apostles. You know what that tells us? These will not be mere tricks. We're not talking about tricks. We're not talking about gimmicks. They will be miracles. Just like Jesus performed miracles. Just like the apostles performed miracles. So the false prophet of Revelation 13 is not the only one who will do miracles during this time. The Antichrist himself will also be able to do miracles as well as other false Christs. It will be rampant deception during those times. Satan knows how gullible many people are in that they believe everything that is miraculous is automatically of God. That's what many Christians even believe today. And that's why it is possible for there to be so much error and confusion in the charismatic movement, the signs and wonders movement, the faith word movement, etc. Beloved, please understand that everything that appears to be miraculous, or even is miraculous, is not from God. Satan loves to deceive people and confuse people by counterfeiting the miracles of God. Ever since his fall, Satan has been a counterfeiter. And in fact, do you remember what prompted his fall? It wasn't, I want to be against God. It was, I will be like God. I want to be God. I want to do everything God does. And so he does miracles. Satan seeks to counterfeit God in every way imaginable. The Lord God has his Christ, so Satan has his Antichrist. The apostles of Jesus use signs 
to point people to the Lord Jesus. So the false prophet and the false messiahs will use signs to point people to the Antichrist. And tragically, many people will fall for this deception. Here Jesus says, to de- this is how convincing it will be, to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And the elect of this verse, that term, has a primary, not exclusive, but a primary reference to the Jewish people in this context because they will be the focus of this massive attempt at deception. Jesus knows what is coming. And that is why he gives this warning. He knows that when all of this chaos and catastrophe begins to break out, many of the Jewish people are going to be looking for answers. They'll start reading the Gospels. That is indicated back in verse 14, which says, let the reader understand. That same phrase is in Matthew's Gospel. The Jewish people who will be frantically searching for answers during the last days will read the words of Jesus. That's why he left them here in the Gospel accounts to be read. And in verse 23 he says, But take heed. See, I have told you all things beforehand. In other words, I have given you ample warning. Don't believe the lies and the false claims and the miracles and the assertions that the Messiah has been discovered in Tel Aviv or in Haifa or New York or London or Jerusalem or wherever. In Matthew 24, 26, Jesus said, Therefore, if they say to you, Look, he's in the desert. Do not go out. Or if they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, don't believe it. These statements will be made in an attempt to lure or entice the Jewish people to come out of hiding. They will be told that the Messiah is out in the desert. Or the Messiah is in a building somewhere. And if they leave their hiding, they will walk right into an ambush and be slaughtered. So Jesus said again, do not Believe it. Don't believe it because the true Messiah is not going to be tucked away in a building somewhere. The true Messiah is not going to be hanging out in the desert. Instead, he will come in blazing glory, a blazing display of glory when he shows up. His appearance will be clearly evident to everyone. In fact, look at how Jesus described it in Matthew 24. Go back to Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse. Matthew chapter 24, verse 27. Jesus says, coming off of this warning in verse 26, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, don't go out. Look, he's in the rooms, don't believe it. Verse 27, 4. Here's why you don't need to believe those assertions. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. It will be obvious when the true Messiah appears. It will be obvious when the true Messiah steps forward. He will appear in blazing glory, as Jesus describes in the verses that follow. Beloved, do you see how gracious it is of the Lord Jesus to give this instruction to the Jewish people. He specifically tells them what they need to know so as not to be deceived. He specifically tells them what not to believe 
and what they should look for in the true Messiah, when he appears, he will do so in blazing glory. It will be public, visible, universal. It won't be something that is subtle. This same point is made in the next verse with a different illustration. Verse 28, 4. For Jesus says, let me explain this even further. I want to make sure you get it. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. What's the point? The point is this. Even from a long way away, you can tell where a carcass is if it's lying out in a field somewhere because of the circling birds above it. In the same way, when the Messiah appears, it will be something that is seen, something that is obvious, not something that is hidden, not something that is subtle. That's the point that Jesus is making with both both of these illustrations. He says, don't believe it when people say, oh, you'll be able to find the Messiah if you go out in the desert, or you'll be able to find the Messiah if you go to such and such a room. No, when the Messiah appears in the last days, it will be clearly obvious to all. That's the point. It is also possible that Jesus used this second illustration, the one here in verse 28. His first one was lightning, comparing it to lightning flashing from the east to the west. And his second illustration, the eagles gathered for the carcasses. It's possible that he used this second illustration about the carcasses and the birds to indicate that when he does come, it will be a severe judgment. Let me show you what I mean by turning over to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19 records a very similar statement. Beginning in verse 11, John describes the second coming of Jesus. He will come on a white horse and so forth. But notice verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. You can't help but think of the contrast between this supper and the one mentioned earlier in this chapter, back in verse 9. Back in verse 9, we read about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse 9, he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. So the marriage supper of the Lamb in verse 9 is an occasion of celebration. The supper mentioned here in verse 17 is an occasion of judgment. It's quite a contrast. And the outcome is so certain that this angel invites the birds to this supper before the battle actually begins. As I mentioned last week, it is fascinating to note that even during this present day, there are so many birds which migrate directly over the land of Israel that it's a problem for both commercial and military flights in and around Israel. The birds fly over Israel instead of over the Mediterranean Sea because they need to eat during their migration. And they fly over Israel instead of flying over the countries to the east of Israel because Israel is far more fertile than the desert countries to the east. So when this angel calls together all the birds, it won't be a new location for many of them. They already go back and forth over that land so they know it well. In verse 18, this invitation says, So that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, 
and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. This is probably what Jesus was alluding to when he said in Matthew 24, For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Jesus connected this feast of carnage with his second coming. And John tells us in verse 19, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Who is the beast? He is the Antichrist, first introduced in chapter 11 of Revelation, further described in the opening verses of chapter 13 of Revelation. He has his forces gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse. That is amazing derangement of mind. They actually think they can defeat Jesus. You say, how in the world could he get people to believe that? Well, remember what we have already seen this morning. You have someone that can do all these miracles, signs, wonders. That's pretty convincing. So the world will be convinced by all of these miraculous works and powers and signs. Hey, this guy's got power. He can defeat anyone. He can even defeat the one coming back on a white horse. They're gathered together for the Battle of Armageddon in the Valley of Jezreel. Napoleon, when he visited the land of Israel, called that valley, quote, the most natural battlefield of the whole earth. And Napoleon knew something about warfare. Now, this won't be the only place where the war will be raging, but it will be centered there. The center of this battle will be the Jezreel Valley, but it will stretch out over all the land of Israel, including the area around Jerusalem. It will go from the Jezreel Valley in the north as far south as Edom. So the armies of the world are gathered for a battle, but it's not really going to be a battle. It's going to be a supper. The great battle of God is going to be the great supper of God because of all the carnage. Ezekiel 39, 17 through 20 says this, And as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, Speak to every sort of bird and to every beast of the field. Assemble yourselves and come gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you, a great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. You shall eat fat till you are full and drink blood till you are drunk. At my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you, you shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men and with all the men of war, says the Lord God. Now that passage may be referring to this same battle, or it may not, but either way, it's not going to be a battle. It's going to be a slaughter. Verse 20 tells us, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. You see, there's not even any battle. There, There won't be a struggle, because the power of the Lord Jesus is so great that the beast and the false prophet will simply be captured. They will be captured and thrown alive into the lake of fire, and they will still be in torment there 1,000 years later, according to chapter 20, verse 10. 
And verse 21 tells us, just as Jesus hinted at in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew's account, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Again, notice that there's not even a battle. We, we don't have to do any fighting. Jesus will not even have to do any fighting. It will all be over in an instant with the utterance of a simple word from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. All the rebels gathered together for battle will be slain and the birds will begin to consume their bodies. Just as Jesus hinted at in the Olivet Discourse. Now it's not a pleasant description. But listen, it pales in comparison to the torment they and other unbelievers will face in the eternal lake of fire. So where are you going to spend eternity? Will you spend eternity with the king or will you spend it in the lake of fire? That depends on your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You can bow to him as your king or you can face him as your judge. It's one or the other. I urge you to receive him as king. Let's bow together as we close. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming back that way someday as King of kings and Lord of lords. And those who rebel, those who resist, as we see here in Revelation 19, will be slaughtered. It's a terrifying picture. It's so unpleasant. You don't even like to read about it or think about it. But it's reality. It's what is going to happen. And in the same way, it is not at all uncommon for people when they read about hell or think about hell just to sort of put it out of their minds. It's just so awful. It's just way easier to dismiss it. But it too is a reality. And it is where people will go because they choose to go there. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, hell was created for the devil and his angels. But people will end up there because they won't receive Jesus Christ. I hope and pray that is not true of anyone here this morning. And if it is you, if you have refused to receive Jesus Christ, receive him today, right now, this moment, so that you could come to know him, believe in him, follow him, love him, and be right with him. Father, as we consider the future as you have told us what it will be, we are reminded of how many times elsewhere in Scripture you predicted the future and it came to pass exactly as you predicted it with extreme precision, with extreme detail. And we should not have any reason to doubt the same will be the case with what you have said about the second coming of Jesus, that he will come in blazing glory just like the lightning flashes from the east to the west, he will come and the eagles, the birds, will be gathered because of the carcasses. It's what you have said will happen, and it will surely happen. And you have also said that when eternity comes, men and women who have refused your son will spend eternity in the lake of fire. Again, not a, a popular topic, not one that we want to think about or talk about, but one that is real one that you speak of in your word. 
So, Father, in closing this morning, I pray for anyone hearing these words right now who, as it stands at this moment, would end up in eternity apart from you. I pray, Father, your Holy Spirit would bring conviction and draw that man, that woman, young person, whoever it is, to come to believe in Jesus Christ, to receive him this day and his glorious salvation, his generous salvation. May you accomplish that in hearts and lives. We pray together in Jesus' name.